Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. And uh, we have been talking now, this is the sixth week, about growing deeper in your relationship with God. No matter where any of us are, there's a next step. And no matter where we are, we can go deeper. The Apostle Paul, now remember, uh, he wrote almost half of the New Testament, uh, ha- went, to, went to heaven and came back, had a vision of Jesus, and he said, not that I have already obtained. He said, I haven't arrived yet. You know, and whenever we think that we've arrived, we're in trouble. Right? We need to keep on growing spiritually. So we've been talking about how to have a good heart. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 33, Jesus said, either make the tree good, and he's talking about your heart, and its fruit will be good, or else make the tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. So Jesus said, you can make a tree bad. You can make your heart bad. There are things you can do that will turn your heart away from God. And on the same token, he said, you can make the tree good. There are things you can do that will turn your heart towards God. In Matthew, excuse me, Matthew, in Luke, the eighth chapter, Jesus is interpreting the parable of the sower, how the kingdom of God works. It's like a seed that gets planted in your heart. Your heart is like ground. And what you plant in your heart your heart, just like ground, is going to produce. So you can plant fear. You can plant lust. You can plant greed. You can plant faith. You can plant plant love. You can plant different things in your heart, and it will produce what you plant. He says, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. He said, now, if you'll make your heart good, when the, king, when the seed of the kingdom of God, God's word, is planted in your heart, he said, it's going to bear fruit. So the apostle Paul, talking again about how the word of God works, how the kingdom works, he said this, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. So when the word of God is planted, it's like you read the Bible, it's planted. Or you, you hear a message and that word is planted. But every gardener and every farmer knows you need to do more than plant. It's got to be watered. If it's not watered, it's not going to produce. Uh, I used the illustration a couple of weeks ago. When, when our oldest son was about one year old, we, we were having spaghetti and we put a bowl of spaghetti right in front of him, right? And he took the bowl, turned it upside down, and put it on his head. Now, he had an experience with food, but he did not get any nutrition from the word, from that food, right? Now, that's what a lot of people do with the Bible. They have an experience with the Bible, right? They hear the word. It gets planted, but it never gets watered. They never get the nutrition from the word of God. 
And what meditating in God's word does is it gets you the nutrition, the faith, the love, the, what, what we need. In fact, in Mark's gospel, fourth chapter, 24th verse, Jesus said, the amount of thought and study you give to the truth you hear will be the amount of virtue, power that you receive. Right? So if, if all we do is here, but we don't take time to meditate on that word. We're not going to receive all that God has for us. In 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word or the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Right? As we get that word right, and we meditate on it, we are going to begin to grow. In Psalms 36, verse 9, it says, for with you is the fountain of light, and in your light we see light. In your light, in the light of God's word, we see light. We begin to see who we really are, what belongs to us. We begin to see what Jesus has purchased for us. We begin to see what God has for us as we get in the word of God. Again, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. So we need to meditate. And as we meditate, it affects our heart, right? Our heart begins to grow towards God, but not just meditating in the word. We need to be doers of the word. In Acts 20, the apostle Paul has been preaching through Asia Minor. He realizes I'm leaving. I'm never going to go back. Never going to have an opportunity to come back here. And this is what he says. He says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified or set apart. He said, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able. God's word is able to build you up spiritually, cause you to grow, cause your relationship with God to be deeper and deeper. So as we meditate in God's word, we see ourselves doing the word. We're applying it to ourselves. What we see who we are, what we can do, what belongs to us, it changes the way that we think. Um, when we're meditating on the word, it's no longer is just mental assent, where we say, yeah, I believe that that is true, right? But we apply it to our life. That's what meditation does, right? You see yourself doing the word. You see how the word affects you. You see how it changes you. You, you, you picture yourself doing the word of God, right? Now, we're living today in a culture that considers spirituality to be like a smorgasbord, you know, I like this in Christianity. I like this that Jesus said. But you know what? I like what Buddha said. And, and I like this in Hinduism. And, and I like this out of the New Age. And we, we try to put it all together. Right? Now, that's not how we say this. The Bible says the entrance of your word brings light and gives understanding to the simple. Now, it's God's word that brings light. It gives us understanding. Jesus said it like this here in Matthew chapter 7. He's just preached the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it didn't fall 
for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them, he said, I liken him to a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. The rains descend, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, both the one who hears and does and the one who hears and doesn't do, both of them have the same winds and rains and, and floods come against their life. Right? But the one that's a doer of the word, who's meditated on the word, who's applying the word in their life, right? they're going to stand. So our society tells us, yeah, you can take something from God's word, but you can also take something from here and something from there. You just need to go in all these different places and get whatever you can that works for you. Right? Now, the Bible says, if it's not according to the word, it says there is no light in them. There's no light. There's no truth in them. Now, we're living again in a culture that tells us that whatever you feel is right for you. If you feel it, man, it's good. Now, Jesus said this in John 14. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. He said, don't let your feelings rule your life. Now, one of the things Satan is going to use is he's going to use feelings. That's why the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Right? Don't let your feelings rule you. That's culture, but that's not the Bible. Right? We need to take every thought, every feeling captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're living in a society that says, well, you know what? It's just, it's true for me. It's what I feel and it's what I believe. And so it's right for me. And don't you dare judge me. Don't you dare. Right? But Jesus said this in Revelation 20. He said this to the church. He said, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into eating food that's sacrificed to idols. Jesus said, don't tolerate. Don't accept everything as being equally true. Don't do it. They said, when, when it's wrong, it's wrong. Right? And it's not wrong because you think it's wrong or you feel it's wrong or because I think it's wrong or I feel it's wrong. It's wrong because God said it's wrong. You say, how can God do that? He's creator and he's the judge. You say, I don't like it. Tough. Just that simple. That is the way it is. And I know our culture doesn't want that. Right? Our culture does not want that. They, they, they want to let their feelings dictate reality. But your feelings do not create reality. Right? So... Proverbs chapter 10, verse 29 says, the way of the Lord is strength to the upright. In other words, every time you or I do something God's way, it strengthens us. Right? We become stronger in our hearts. It connects us more with God. But in Hebrews 3.13, it says this, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this is what the deceitfulness of sin says. 
It says, if you sin, it will not affect you. You can go ahead and sin and you'll be just the same. Now, let me say this. If you sin, God loves you just the same. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Your sinning will not make God love you less. But your sinning will make you love God less. Your sinning will turn your heart away from God. You will be less sensitive to God. And it will turn your heart away. And it makes it easier to sin again and again. And ultimately, the Bible says that your conscience will become seared. Now, your conscience is the voice of your spirit or your heart. And it becomes seared. You see, you keep on sinning and you come to the point you do not know what is right and what's wrong. Your conscience becomes seared like with a hot iron. In other words, if, if I took a hot iron and I put it on my hand and took it away, it would heal. But I could touch it afterwards and I couldn't even tell. I couldn't feel it anymore because all the nerves have been burned and are no longer functioning. Right? When we sin, that's what happens in our heart. Right? The deceitfulness of sin says, ah, it won't affect you at all, but it will affect you. Right? And then we mentioned this last week, but I think it's worth mentioning again. There are things that we need to avoid because they will enslave your heart away from God. Three of them are mentioned in, in uh, Hosea 4, verse 11, where it says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. They enslave your heart away from God. Now, I want to give you like a, a, a 21st century paraphrase of this. Harlotry is pornography and illicit sex. It will enslave you. It will enslave your heart away from God. New wine, wine and new wine, alcohol abuse and drugs will enslave your heart. Uh, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. King David's son. And God had said, don't marry foreign women. Well, he went and got married a thousand times, literally a thousand times. Right? And this is what the Bible says. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods away from God. His, his wives turned his heart away from God. And, and in his case, it was really, it was a sexual addiction that turned his heart away from God. So there's things that we need to avoid because they will literally capture your heart and turn your heart away from the Lord. Now, there's, there's so many things that affect our heart. But if somebody said just one thing, just tell us one thing that's going to affect our heart. The number one thing is this. It is repentance. Right? Repentance. Now, repentance is not something you do one time. Right? Repentance is really, it's more like an attitude. And it's something that we do constantly. Now, to, when, when we have a repentant heart, every time that we know we've done something that is displeasing to God, we don't run from God, we run to God. Right? And we turn our back on whatever that thing is. Right? Um, Repentance is really a prerequisite to Bible faith. John the Baptist 
was in the wilderness, and he's preaching. Now, he's making the, he, he is preparing Israel to receive the Messiah in the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing. And this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom's here. It's now. It's available. Repent. Right? Jesus, of course, came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, repentance is not a fleeting feeling. It's not sorrow for some past action. Rather, it's a solid intellectual decision to turn around and to take a new direction. So if if you're walking in one direction and you repent, you turn around and you start going 180 degrees in a different direction. It's a mental choice to turn towards God with all of one's heart and to follow Jesus. And it's really, repentance is the birth canal for all things in the kingdom of God. Now, what, what it's not is it's not being, I, well, let me, yeah, I, I remember years ago, I'm praying, and, and I said, God, I repent. I repent of this sin. And, and I felt like God said, no, you don't. So I thought I just needed to be more sincere. You know, so I'm like, I repent. You know, and, and I just, you know, sometimes you says God saying, no, nah, no, you don't. And so I get, you know, I get more into it. Like, ah, I repent. And this is what I felt like God said to me. He said, you don't repent. He says, you're just sorry. You're sorry. I don't like your sin. Because you like your sin and you wish I liked it. That is not repentance. Right? That's remorse. But that's not repentance. When we just say, I'm sorry, and really we think, you know, I'm sorry you don't like it, but uh, this is going to happen again. Right? That isn't repentance. Right? On the day of Pentecost, when the church is born, Peter preaches and the people say, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. Number one is repent. Right? Um, the Bible, in most of our translations, say that Judas repented. Right? But it's interesting, it's not the same Greek word that John the Baptist used. It's not the same Greek word that Jesus used when he said repent. And by the way, John the Baptist said to repent and bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Right? When there's true repentance, there is fruit. There is a change in behavior. All right? So Judas, it says, repented. Right? But the Greek word that's used there portrays a person who's overwhelmed with emotion. Right? This word is used five times in the New Testament. Right? And it depicts a person who's seized with remorse, guilt, and regret. Right? So Judas betrays Jesus. Right? And he's, he repents. Or literally, we could say there was remorse. There was guilt. Right? There was regret. And he went out and he hung himself. But he never changed his behavior. You see, what, 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 when there's remorse, here's what it is. is You're sorry for the consequences. Right? If you rob a bank, let's just say, you, you wouldn't do that. So let's say somebody robs a bank. 
They get away with $10 million, but then they get caught. All right. And, And they say, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're sorry you got caught. But if you had gotten away with it and taken your $10 million down to a Caribbean island, you'd have been happy. Right? That's not repentance. Right? That's just remorse. You're sorry for the consequences. Right? When there's true repentance, we're sorry for what we've done, how we've hurt God, offended God, and others. Right? So when there's true repentance, we move in a different direction. When there's guilt, guilt is just a prison that will keep you perpetually bound but unchanged. Guilt won't bring a change. Remorse enslaves you to the sorrow, and it engulfs you emotionally and leaves you feeling sad and depressed and unchanged. Regret is just self-pity, and it's focused more on our personal loss. We got caught. We've got bad consequences to what we did. But that is not repentance. Repentance is a quality decision to change. And when there's genuine repentance in a person's heart, there's fruit. There's fruit, right? Because you you were moving in one direction, you turned around, and now you're going in a completely different direction, right? Um, I I want to use uh, from rather recent history, an illustration that many of us remember, and those of you who don't, let me just kind of fill you in. Right? In uh, 1998, uh, the president of the United States was Bill Clinton, and there was a scandal with an intern by the name of Monica Lewinsky. First of all, the, the president denied anything, and then finally, uh, he was forced to admit that he had engaged in sexual activity with her. Right? Um, he, he ultimately gave about a five-minute speech confessing the whole thing. Right? And it's interesting, both Democrats and Republicans, when they heard it, they're just like, yeah, you know, something isn't just, it, it just really did not strike a chord. Right? But in a reporter examined and really deconstructed his speech, and this is what he wrote. He said that he had 549 words in his talk, five-minute talk. 134 were self-justification. Four were regret, four words were regret for his actions. Right? 180 words were he used to attack the prosecutor. And 137 words were used to say, it's time to move on. And there was not one word of apology anywhere. Not one word of apology. Now, when when there is true repentance involved, we're sorry for how we've hurt people. We're sorry for how we hurt God. And we aren't justifying and we aren't attacking. Now, when God calls us to repentance, he's calling us out of something. Now, in Ephesians 2.10, I want you to listen to this. For we're God's own handiwork, recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew, that we may do the good works which God predestined, which simply means planned beforehand for us, taking paths he prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them, living the good life he prearranged and made ready for us to live. Most most of us only think about what God has called us from, right? But equally, God has called us to, right? 
to the kingdom of God and to good works. If all you do is think about what God brought you from, then really the kingdom of God, Christianity, salvation becomes about you. Right? But when we realize God has not just called us from, God has called us to something. Now, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, it says, Now may the very God of peace sanctify you completely. So God's going to talk about your whole being here completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, you are a trichotomy. You are three parts. You are a spirit. The real you is a spirit. And someday your body's going to die. If Jesus does not come back, your body will die. It'll wear out and it's going to die. And when you do, something's going to happen. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us about a band named Lazarus. It says that he died, and this is what Jesus said, but the angels carried him. They put his body in a tomb, but the angels carried him. You are a spirit. That's the real you that's alive on the inside of your body. You're not your body. Now, notice it says soul. In, In one word, your soul is your intellect. And how many of you know you're not an intellect? You were just as much you before you knew multiplication as you were afterwards. Right? Your, your soul is your mind right? and your emotions. But that is not you. So you are a spirit. You have a soul or a mind, and you live inside of a body. Right? Now, when you become a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ... You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, what becomes new is not your body. If you were bald before you were saved, still bald. If you were 30 pounds overweight before you were saved, still 30 pounds overweight. If you were ugly before you were saved, still ugly. It's not your body that changes, right? Your body didn't change. And your soul, your mind didn't change. In James chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. See, when you become a Christian, your soul doesn't get saved. Your spirit does. The Bible says God's word is able to save your soul. And really, the saving of your soul, the renewing of your mind, are two ways to save the exact same thing. And the renewing of your mind simply means to change the way you think. Stop thinking like culture and think like God. How do you do it? With the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is able to save your soul. Change the way that you think. But you're a spirit. In John Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus said God is a spirit. God's a spirit. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says he makes his angels spirits. They're spirits. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, it says you're a spirit. Right? Now, here's the thing about you. You are a hybrid being. You say, what does that mean? That means you have a physical body, and you live and you function in the physical world. But you're also a spirit. The real you is a spirit, and you can function in the spiritual world. So you can function in both worlds. Now, what happens is this. Most of us are controlled by our body. 
and we function almost completely in the natural, physical world. But what God wants us to do is he wants us to be controlled by our spirit. So 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. This is Paul speaking. He said, I, that's the spirit, I discipline my body and bring it. Your body is not you, your body's it. Your body is the house that your spirit lives in. He said, so I discipline my body. I bring it, my body, into subjection. Least, or when I preach to others, I myself could become a castaway. Now, here's what Paul's saying. This is Paul who wrote almost half of the New Testament, went to heaven, came back, had a vision of Jesus, and he says, I got problems with my body. Paul had problems with his body. He was a pretty spiritual guy. He said, I have problems with my body. What do you think about this? David was God's best guy. He had problems with his body. Solomon was God's strongest guy, and he had problems with his body. Solomon was God's wisest guy, and he had problems with his body. And Paul said, if I don't do something, my body's going to ruin my life. So Paul had problems with his body. I'm your pastor. My body's crazy. So Paul said, look, we need to do something with our bodies. He says, I need to discipline it. I need to bring it into subjection. I need my body to not run my life. I need my spirit to run my life. That's why he said, I bring it, my body, into subjection. So somebody says, "Well, well, how do you do that? Well, the number one way that you do that is through fasting. Now, in in Psalms uh, 69 and 10, he said, I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. In Psalms 35, he said, I humbled myself with fasting. I humbled myself. How many know the Bible says to humble yourself? Okay, how do you do that? Humble, 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 humble. How do you humble yourself? Well, the Bible says you humble yourself with fasting. Right? Now, now, you may not realize this, that your body is dominating you, but I'm telling you, your body's dominating you. And I'm going to give you, it, it, let's, let's just suppose tomorrow you decide to fast. You get up, you have no breakfast, no coffee. Right? You skip lunch. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. About 1.30, your, your your stomach, your body is going to tell you, we need to eat. We're going to die. We're going to die. You're not going to die. All right. But your body will tell you you're going to die. I remember years ago, literally before I got saved even, I smoked. And so I quit smoking. And I remember I quit smoking and it was probably like, Four o'clock, four, four hours later, my, my body said to me, I'm telling you, it said, I want a Winston. Told me. He said, I want a Winston. I said, no, no, you can't have any. It said, I said, I want a Winston. No. About an hour later, my head starts to hurt. Right? And my body said, give me a Winston. 
I said, no, you can't have one. He says, I'll take a camel. I'll take a Marlboro. I'll take whatever you give me. Right? I mean, you know, your body talks to you, right? But you need to take dominion over your body. So, so, you, so you say, no, you're not eating today, right? In, 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 um, in Isaiah 58, the entire chapter is about fasting, how not to and how to. It is what it says again and again. Isn't this the day? The day. Normally, what would happen is that someone would eat right before dark, and then they wouldn't eat again until the next day, right when it got dark, 24-hour period. It's 24 hours. It's a day. That's the normal fast, right? Now, now there's uh, exceptions to that, but that's just a normal fast. And if that doesn't work, somebody can miss a meal, right? Um, but what you're doing is your spirit is telling your body no, right? You are not going to dominate me. And what you do during that time period is you spend extra time in the Word of God, extra time in prayer. And what's happening, you're reaching out to God, right? And what happens, your spirit rises up and begins to take authority over your body and over your mind. Um, about a month ago, Jeannie and I were with some friends, and uh, the, 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 the lady, her name's Liz, she, she, said, uh, she said, I was an alcoholic for 22 years. She says, I became a Christian, and I'm still bound. She said, and uh, I was doing a fast, and she says, I was doing a 40-day media fast. Right? So no social media, no news. In fact, how many of you realize that, that most of us spend a lot more time in the light of a screen than we do the light of the Word of God? Right? So she just cut out screen time, period, 40 days, 40 days. And she said, at the end of the 40 days, she said she was in her kitchen, and Jesus literally walked. She had her eyes wide open. Jesus just walked right in, came over, touched her instantly, instantly set free. Now, I want to just read something here from Isaiah 58, and it's talking again about fasting, and it's talking about the rewards for fasting. He says, isn't this the fast I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness or addiction, to loose addictions, to break addictions, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke, every yoke of bondage. You know, there, there's Christians that they've, they've been saved for years, but yet their body's dominating their life. Right? And they need to have their spirit rise up right? and take authority and take dominion and the Bible says it looses the bonds of wickedness. It undoes heavy burdens. It lets the oppressed go free, breaks every. You say, but this is what I, it breaks every yoke. Every single yoke. Right? Now, for 1,500 years, Christians all fasted twice a week. 250 years ago, when John Wesley was preaching and started what we call today the Methodist denomination, right? uh, you had to become a volunteer lay preacher you had to sign a covenant that you would fast two days a week. It's just kind of disappeared from the church totally almost in, in the last. I remember when I was growing up, on our street there were Catholics, all right? And on Friday, how many remember on Friday what Catholics would do? They'd eat fish and they wouldn't eat meat. You say, what was that? That was like the end of fasting. 
right? Where, where it just kind of disappeared from the church. But Jesus said, when you fast. Jesus didn't say if. He said when. When you fast. Right? Uh, and if you will put the spiritual discipline into your life, And and, uh, we were talking in between services, and somebody said, well, how should it be? What what should we do? Well, I I don't believe that there's a set, everybody needs to do this or needs to do that. For somebody, it might just be, hey, I'm going to miss three meals a week, right? And I'm going to seek God. For somebody else, I'm going to set a a day aside, right? And which is the most common practice in the Bible. It was a day. It was a 24-hour period, right, where we seek God, and literally our spirit begins to rise up and take dominion. Remember, Paul said, although I've written half of the, the, your New Testament, been to heaven and came back, he said, my body gives me trouble, and I need to do this, right? Least my body control my life, Right? But when we fast, we allow our spirit, our heart, to rise up and take dominion in our life. Say, would you bow your heads for just a moment? You know, we live in our culture again that says, hey, good people, just be a good person and you'll go to heaven. I want you to to, to understand this very clearly. The Bible does not say good people go to heaven. The Bible teaches that forgiven people go to heaven. And Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying to you and me is this. He's saying, all of the things that I do to try to reach out to God will not make me right with God. And all of the things you do to reach out to God will not make you right with God. What we need to do is respond to what God has done in reaching out to us. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, what does that mean? That means you need to give him all of your heart and all of your life. You see, salvation has never been about what you know. You know, almost everybody has celebrated Easter and Christmas. We know about God. But salvation is about your heart. Not about your head. It's about your heart. Have you given Jesus all of your heart and all of your life? And if you haven't given it to him and left it with him, you still have it. And he's not a manipulator to deceive you. He's not a thief to steal. If you haven't given him your heart and your life, you still have it. And the choice is yours. But to be right with God, Jesus is the only way. And he says, give me all of your heart and all of your life. Turn your back on your old life. Stop living to please yourself and live for me. Now, the Bible says this. It says, whosoever, that's you, that's me, will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. We're going to pray a prayer and we're going to call on the name of the Lord the way the Bible shows us to. And if you're not right with God, if you're here, you're online, you're not right with God and you will pray this prayer from your heart. When we say amen, you're going to be right with God. So I'm going to ask everybody, if you can, would you take hands with somebody that's near you? And I want you to pray this prayer out loud from your heart. Make these words your own. Say, oh God, 
I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe that he rose again. Victorious over death, sin, and the devil. And I give Jesus all of my heart and all of my life. And I hold nothing back. I turn my back on my old life. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for my King, for my Lord, Jesus. And I thank you. You've heard my prayer. And my past is gone. And I'm a part of your kingdom today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.